All right. Hey, uh, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to get right uh, to work. Uh, three main points in our text today. I think I'll get through two of them. We'll see. Um, I may have my message finished for next week, too, so praise the Lord. Fed you guys with a fire hose last week. I'm going to take it a little easier on you uh, today. Daniel chapter 2, if you just join us, let me catch you up to speed. Uh, the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. If you were here in second service last week, I misspoke in the second service, and I said A.D. Clearly, uh, I meant uh, 6 B.C., um, but uh, it was written in, in the year 6 B.C., by a young man from the tribe of Judah. Uh, And it's the namesake of this book, a young man by the name of Daniel. Uh, See, what had happened was the nation of Babylon had conquered the tribe of Judah. And they had taken uh, many from the tribe of Judah into uh, captivity. And the king ordered in particular, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon ordered that all the gifted young men uh, that were descendants of the king the tribe of Judah, that they be taken captive. As we saw last week, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, And uh, so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these fine young men uh, who were gifted, who were wise, who were young and good-looking, the the Bible tells us, and the Bible's not given to exaggeration. So, uh, you know, you envision whatever, ladies, your Hurley models. This is what these guys looked like, you know. And, uh, And so... Uh, these men, not only fine specimens of of a human being, but they were godly men. We saw that every single one of their names uh, has to do with with the worship and the honoring and the trusting of God. And, And the theme of the book of Daniel is the absolute sovereign rule and dominion of God. The message it conveys is this, that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are or how you got there, Ultimately, God will have his way and his purposes will prevail. Whether the person honors God, trusts God, lives for God, or their life is dead set against God, makes no matter to God. Obviously, he wants that all should be saved and and come to the knowledge of him and saving faith in him, Uh, desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. But regardless of whether people do that or don't, Uh, God is beholding to no man and he will accomplish his purposes. His purposes are sovereign uh, and his dominion is sound. And so what we saw was that regardless of the circumstances or how you got there, ultimately God will accomplish those purposes that are his. They're the ones that will prevail. And here's the big idea that runs all through this book. And and, And that is this, that we can trust God no matter what. Here you have these godly young men. Who, who were largely victims of, of circumstance, not really in themselves doing things that dishonor God. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear. These are young men who are trying their utmost to honor God with their lives. Nevertheless, they are living under a tribe and a nation that has been cursed by God because of uh, their disobedience and their sin. And so their, the sin of their fathers, as it were, brought consequence to them. We talked about that uh, last week. And, and so nevertheless, these godly men suffering some ungodly consequences, but they can be confident in the middle of those, of those consequences, knowing, you know what, God's not done with my life. God's not done with me. And as a matter of fact, here in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, I can live a life that glorifies God. I can live 
a life that honors God. And this is the, the, the portrait that Daniel paints for us. It's this picture and this lesson of how we can serve God faithfully even when we're in the middle of trial, even when we're in the middle of circumstances that we largely don't control, even when we are the victims, the recipients of evil, uh, we can still honor God and we can still give our lives over to God obediently and watch how he will work. Now, we saw last week that the name Daniel literally means God is my judge, and this is how Daniel lived his life. He was ever mindful of the fact that God is my judge, that there will come a day when, when I have to give an account of my life to God. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And Daniel lived his life with the certain understanding of that truth, that one day I will stand before God. And so accordingly, he ordered the things and the events in his life in such a way to honor God. And even though the objective of the king was to change Daniel and to change his companions and to get them to eat of his delicacies and to drink of his wine and to reprogram them in their language and in their culture and ultimately to change their names and to get them to identify all together with their gods and not the true and living God. Uh, Even though this was the king's objective, yet Daniel would not bow. He lived his life with the certain knowledge that God is his judge, God is my judge, I'll give an account of it. Now, we took a good look at that last week. If you're a parent and you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to the message online just talking about how there is a full court press for the hearts and minds of our children. And, and the, the, the message coming out of that is, is one of, hey, listen, it's not so much that we need to be horrified at the agenda that's going after our kids and we need to change the agenda, although I'm all for Christians infiltrating this world and making a difference for Christ. But the bigger lesson of the book of Daniel is that we as parents should be ourselves walking and, and following and seeking after living a godly life with God, but we also as parents should be raising our children to be able to live in a corrupt world, a corrupt world that's trying to change their name, change their identity, change their focus. We should be those parents that equip our kids to live in that kind of world so that they can be Daniels, being those ones who will not bow, who will honor God. And additionally, in harmony with the major theme of this book being that God is sovereign and his dominion is sound over people and events, what we see in harmony with that is that Daniel is also a prophetic book in that it foretells the future hundreds and even thousands of years <clears throat> excuse me, in advance. And we're going to get into that today. And just kind of as our jumping off point, I'll direct you to uh, verse 17 of chapter 1. Even though we covered this last week, this is the starting point for today where uh, we read, as for these four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these four young men, God gave them knowledge and will in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This figures prominently in the book. It's going to figure prominently here in chapter 2 and in our, our, our lesson uh, for today. And <clears throat> as uh, we're ready to get into chapter 2, let me just give you a word for a minute about how God speaks to us. 
Um, God speaks to us in many different ways. He reveals himself to us in many different ways. He directs us in many different ways. He speaks to us through his written word. God speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through circumstances in our lives. Uh, just that, those, those pragmatic indicators in our life where God speaks to us through the circumstances that we're in. He speaks to us through the counsel, the wisdom and counsel of others. And he speaks to us prophetically through, through dreams and through visions. Now, God uses these various means because we require it. We require that uh, God, we're not always going to hear him in the same way. And so because we require different forms of communication, God has all of these alternate forms of communication so that he can get through to us so that we can hear from him. Now, I always like to take things back to the family. That's the way things make sense for me. So much when we're studying the things of the kingdom of God and, and the way that God operates makes sense when you put it in the context of family. And so you take your kids, for instance. When you're communicating with your kids, it takes an ocean of communication to get through to them, doesn't it? They, you can talk till you're blue in the face. They may not hear it. And so you have all sorts of different vehicles and ways through which you're going to communicate with your kids because you want them to hear what you're saying. And so you may con- communicate to them as God communicates to us through his written word. You may communicate to your kids through the written word. You know, Scotty, before you leave the house, you will take out the trash, you will, and you give them, you know, the little list of things that they've got to do. There is a written word. Welcome home for school. Get to work. Do your homework. Empty the dishwasher. You know, whatever it is, we communicate in that way. We also, as you know, we communicate to the, to the Father in prayer. What is prayer? Well, it's a conversation. And we communicate to our children through a conversation. As a matter of fact, I always like to encourage dads and tell them, listen, you know, with your kids, you know, there was all of this discussion years ago about quantity time versus quality time, and maybe you can't spend quantity time with your kids, but, you know, you can really focus on spending some quality time with your kids, and and that's that's great in theory. The problem is you never know when quality time is going to show up. And so what you have to do is you got to really be mindful of the fact that a lot of times, especially with your boys... The quality time will show up in the midst of something random, something completely unexpected. Brenda used to talk to me about, you know, she'd pick the kids up from school. I took them to school every day. She would pick them up every day. And on the drive home, that's where she got all her information, you know. We had three, three kids, two older uh, daughters and then a younger son. Well, the, the, the girls are just, they just talk, 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 talk. So all kinds of information. They tell you everything. The boy gets in the car. It's like, what would you do today? Nothing. How was school? It was fine. You know, they just don't talk. And Brenda, Brenda said to me, she goes, I used to think, you know, these other parents just weren't good parents. And then I realized, no, they, they've got sons. They just don't talk. They don't have the information. The girls will talk all the way home, talk your ear off. But at any rate, so we have conversation. This is how we communicate, you know, through, through, through you know, conversing with our kids. Also, uh, we communicate to our kids through circumstances, you know, uh, your, uh, your kid, he's 16 years old, and you're trying to teach him responsibility, and uh, he thinks, you know, that life consists of uh, waking up at the crack of noon and, uh, you know, playing video games, and that when he wants the keys to the car, it'll always be there for him with a full tank of gas, and you're trying to teach him some responsibility, and so he says, can I use the car? You're like, sure. You give him the keys. He goes out. He comes back in. He's like, uh, it's on empty. You're like, yeah, what are you going to do about that, son? 
You want to use my car? You're going to put some gas in it? You know, kind of thing. And maybe you've thought this through. You've ordered the circumstances to teach him a, a, a lesson and to communicate to him. And so as, as God communicates to us through circumstances, so too, that's one of the vehicles that we employ to talk to our kids through circumstances. Now, uh, another way that God communicates with us and that we communicate with our kids uh, is through the counsel of others. You know, Brenda and I, for years, um, raising up our kids, we thought, you know, that, that we just were brilliant parents, so we had the corner on the market. And, um, and then what happened was our oldest daughter, who's our compliant daughter, they're the ones that give you trouble when they get older, the compliant ones. Strong-willed ones are a lot of work, but they make great adults, you know. Um, but she's our compliant one, man, she just had a propensity to be attracted to pond scum. It was just sort of what, what her gift was, I guess. I don't know. And so she, you know, just would get connected with these guys that I just wanted to bury out in the desert, you know. And so now she married the man that I spent my life praying for. The man she's married to is a godly man. I love him. Uh, and he, he's serving our nation in the, in the Navy and, and uh, just a, a, a great guy. He's the guy I prayed for. But I said to Megan on a couple occasions, this is not the guy that I've been praying for for you your whole life. And so we, anyway, we had a situation where Megan was giving us really a hard time. Um, and so uh, we, we called up Darcy, uh, Pastor Josh's wife. He's coming out to teach for us in July. And and so we called up Darcy, and we just said, hey, Darcy, she won't hear from us. And sometimes you know how it is. Your kids don't hear from you. You know, Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And sometimes there's just that situation where your kids don't listen to you. And so we, we said, Darcy, would you, would you talk some sense into her? And, and so she did. And, uh, and Megan came home and started telling us all of the brilliant things that Darcy had said to her, everything we had been telling her. But she didn't hear it through us. She heard it through, through Darcy. And so the, the counsel of others. Sometimes this is how God speaks to us. And as well, God speaks to us prophetically. And typically this is in the form of, of dreams or, or visions. Now, let me give you a personal example of how God speaks to us prophetically. And this is all leading into our text today. Um, for me, I, I had an experience in, uh, in March of 2007. God had called me to plant a church. I just didn't know where. Um, and even at that point, I, didn't, I wasn't even quite so sure he called me to plant a church. What he had called me to do was to step down from the ministry that I was in. He, that much was clear. And so, you know, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was very much an, an Abraham type of call where he basically said, Okay, step away from, from that ministry, cut off, all, cut off everything on that, and then I'll tell you what to do. And, um, and I, I, you know, it's it, crazy, but he, anyway, so that's the way it went down. So now it's March, and I'm, I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm reading his word, I'm talking to people. I'm like, God, I need to hear from you. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And I had it in my mind. I was kind of settled that maybe I was going to go join this existing ministry in the Pacific Northwest. And, and I was really feeling strongly led in that, in that direction. I'm like, you know, I don't know so much that I'm supposed to plant a church. I think maybe I'm supposed to go join this existing work. And so... I, you know, I did everything, and I'm just not hearing. I'm just not hearing the Lord's voice. So I went to bed one night, and I just said, Lord, you say in your word that you give young men visions and you give old men dreams, and I don't know which category I fall into right now in this season of life, 
but I'll take either one at this point. You know that I'm doing everything to seek your will, and I'm, not, and I'm just not hearing. And I just said, Lord, please speak to me. And that night I had a dream, and it was a very vivid dream. And the, and the, the, the man who was leading this work in, in the Pacific Northwest died in a car crash. And it was, it was one of those dreams that is real in every way. It was in, it was in color, and it was just vivid, and it was being reported on the news, and, and it was just very vivid. And I woke up from the dream in the middle of the night. It was one of those dreams that just wakes you up. And, it, and I knew that there was something significant to this dream. And, and immediately, my first conscious thought took me to, to the end of John's gospel. And there in the last chapter of John's gospel, there's this exchange between Jesus and Peter. He's restored Peter, and, uh, and he's telling Peter about all the things that Peter's going to have to suffer for, you know, in ministry, serving him. And, and it says there that Peter looked back, and he saw John. And Peter's response was, well, what about him? And Jesus said to Peter, basically, look, that's none of your business. It ain't none of your business, Peter, what I do with him. You follow me. And then immediately, God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is just, this scripture just came to mind. It was my first conscious thought. It was a word from God. And, and he gave me the picture of the, of the dream. He gave me the scriptural interpretation. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and gave me the application. And he said, if you go to the Pacific Northwest, you're going to be following a man. And he just showed me very vividly. So you go there and you follow this guy and he's killed. You know, it wasn't prophetic that this guy was going to get killed. At least I, I was pretty confident that that wasn't, wasn't it. But basically what he showed me was, okay, so you go there and you're going to be serving alongside this guy. And you'd basically be going because, you know, you, you love this guy's ministry. But, you know, life is a vapor. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. And I could take him out. And then what? Are you really going because you feel called there? Are you going because you feel called to serve along this 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 guy, and let me just tell you, if you do that, you'd be going to serve a man. I'm telling you, that's none of your business. You follow me. One of the coolest experiences I've ever had with God, and it was all to tell me no. <laughs> God was saying, no, you're not going to go where you think you want to go, but it was an amazing thing. It was supernatural, and I heard his voice. That's the point. You see, and, and, and today here in Daniel chapter 2, God has something to say to King Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, it's a lot bigger than that. And it's always a lot bigger than that with God. Not only does he have something to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he's got something to say to Daniel through it. And he has something to say to you and I through it. And he's going to do it uh, in this area of, of, a, of a prophetic dream and the, the, the prophecy that, that, that applies to that. So Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign... Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. You ever been there? You have a dream, and you can't sleep. It freaks you out. It's one of those things. You wake up, and it's just like, this is where he's at. His sleep left him. And then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came, and they stood before the king. Verse 3, and the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now that word anxious, if you're given to taking notes, you could circle it. And, uh, and nearby, uh, you could write this. You could write to strike, to beat, or to push persistently. 
to strike, to beat, or to push persistently. And this is the anxiety. It's striking him. It's beating him. It's pushing persistently. Some of you guys, you're searching for work right now. And you go to bed and three o'clock in the morning is that beautiful magic hour that you just love to hate because that's when it's striking, it's beating, and it's pushing against you, right? You know the feeling. You've got that thing that's bearing down on you. You've got that thing that, that you are just, this, this, I can't think of anything else. It's all consuming. We had a pastor's conference last week. I was talking to one of my friends, a, a pastor of another church, and he, he was telling me about an experience and the thing that he's going through, and he basically is talking about how he's losing sleep over it. I'm like, of course you are. I mean, we have these things that are huge and, and that they keep us up at night. And so he says, I'm anxious to know what this dream means. It's pushing against me. And so he knows there's something significant about this dream, but he doesn't know what the particular thing is. So what's he do? He wants to figure this out, so he calls for some help. And, and who does he call? But he calls the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. And that, that word Chaldeans has to do with, with uh, Babylonian priests who were these, these it's kind of, uh, you know, magician, you know, wise men kind of guys. And, and so he calls, he calls them. And, and, and that just right in itself is, is the, the groundwork for our first point today. And I'd encourage you to write it down. If you're taking notes, it's a question. I really want you to take a walk with it this week. Here's the question. Who do you rely on for help and advice in your life? See, the Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There is. And it is wise to seek out counsel. The question is, who, who do you rely on for help? And for that counsel, are, are they godly people or are they ungodly people? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26 says this, the godly give good advice to their friends, but the wicked lead them astray. Again, Proverbs 15, 2 says, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Again, Proverbs 15, 27 says, The lips of the wise give good advice, but the heart of a fool has none to give. And, and there are no shortage in this world of fools giving out advice hand over fist. I, I don't know if you saw the news story. I'm, I'm confident you probably did. It was all over the national news. But there was a couple that was in New York last week. And, and they uh, hosted a radio show as, as life coaches. They were, it was a guy named John Littig. He was a motivational speaker. Uh, and his common-law psychotherapist wife, Lynn Rosen. And, uh, and, and the, the report was that, that here, this popular couple that, that had this radio station and had this show about life coaching and all, that they'd committed double suicide. Now, here's something. This, this is kind of like on all of their advertising. This is what they proudly proclaimed in all of their, the service that they provided in this life coaching our, quote, our service is designed to help foster and encourage your inner strengths and put you confidently on the path to designing the life that you've always wanted to live, end quote. Okay? 
So, I mean, there's all kinds of red flags that stand out to me about this. It's all me, myself, and I, and you're a winner, and you can be a great person. And so our service is designed to help you foster and encourage your inner strength. And, and you can design the life that's going to, you know, that you want to live, that's going to make you a better you. This was what they proudly proclaimed. And, uh, and apparently their last act of instruction was that they committed suicide. Now, these, and how would you like, by the way, maybe you've modeled your life after the, the life coaching that these people get, and the last message they give you is, it ain't working for us. We're out. You know, they, they, I mean, it's a tragedy. They left this, this, this suicide notes, one in her handwriting, one in his, and it, basically it's just too painful. We can't handle it. By the way, just so you know, you can't handle it. I mean, if you're living your life based on this kind of a philosophy, you will come to the end of yourself. It's only a matter of time. Your, your life and the issues that we face are so much bigger than us. And these are precisely the kind of people, the, precisely the kind of advisors that Nebuchadnezzar looked to. So we continue there. Verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. He says, hey, I had a dream. It's troubling me. I need you guys to, you know, to interpret the dream. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, which is Aramaic for, man, you look good. You lost weight. You know, this is, they're kissing up to this guy. O king, live forever. Uh, tell your servants the dream, and, and we'll give the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered, and he said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. That word ash, uh, literally some translations use the word dung. He basically says, you know, everything that you have is going to become a pile of manure if you don't translate, you know, this dream uh, for me. Now, he says at the beginning of that verse, my decision is firm. If you have the King James Version, your, your translates it a little bit differently. He says, the thing is gone from me. You're like, how does the two match up? Well, basically, the idea is, hey, I've said it. It's out there. I ain't taking it back. It's firm kind of thing. And that's the way many translate this. Now, the, the, the other translation, the other way that you could translate this in regards to the thing is gone for me, and some people interpret it this way, is that what the king, when they said, tell us the dream, basically what the king was saying is, I can't tell you the dream. I can't really remember it. Now, it could be either one. I don't know which one it is, but I've certainly, haven't you ever had a dream that woke you up and you're like, I had the freakiest dream last night. And your wife's like, well, what it was? I don't know. I can't remember it. Well, how do you know? I just, I just remember it freaked me out. It was really unsettling, right? And, and, and so that it could be either one. And, and, and whether it's one or whether the, it's the other, it doesn't much matter. It doesn't change what transpires here. He basically says, look, I had a dream, and I ain't telling you what the dream is. I want you to tell me what the dream was, and I want you to give me the interpretation. Verse 6, he says, he continues, however, if you tell the dream, now he's just told them, if they don't tell him the dream, I'm going to cut you in pieces, which I'll spare you the details, but they had a very unique way, these Babylonians, of how they cut people in pieces. It involved trees and ropes and things like that. But anyway, he says, you know, if, if, if you ain't going to tell me the dream and its interpretation, you're going to be cut in pieces, your houses are going to become piles of manure. But in verse 6, he says, however... 
If you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So this is the carrot and the stick. You know, he starts off with a stick. This is what you're going to get if you don't. Then here's the carrot if you do kind of thing. And in verse 7, they answered again and they said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. It's just like talking to your kids. You know, hey, you got to do this and you tell them and then they're like, you know, they ask you the same thing again, right? I just told you. So verse eight, the king answered and he said, I know for certain that you would gain time. In other words, you're going to stall and you're going to lie is what he's about to say. But he says, because you see that my decision is firm. Verse nine, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. Now you get the sense that they've lied to him before, don't you? Just in how he's dealing with them. He's like, I'm already not so sure about you guys. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, you hear some comedians, they joke about, you know, calling the psychic hotline. And, you know, one guy says, you know, ring, ring, hello. He's like, why'd you let it ring? <laughs> if you're so psychic. You know, another guy, you know, talking about the same thing. He's like, they asked me my name and my, my birth date and they asked me all this information. He's like, well, why should I tell you? You should know all that stuff. You know, one guy, another guy talks about, you know, he's, he's got a, the psychic and the psychic says, your name starts with an M. He's like, my name is Carrie. He goes, well, your last name starts with an M. He said, my last name is Tucker. He says, Mr. Carrie Tucker? <laughs> you know, and so uh, you get the impression that, you know, this guy has dealt with these guys, you know, and that they've lied to him and that they've strung him along and all this stuff. And, and so he's like, look, you, you know, you're, you're going to tell me the dream and you're going to tell me its interpretation. And it's kind of smart on his part because basically he's like, look, if I don't tell you what the dream is and you correctly tell me what the dream is, well, then I know that I can be confident in the interpretation that you give because, you know, clearly you tell me the dream, then you know what you're talking about kind of thing. So verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and they said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. And this is the first, and as far as I can tell, the only correct thing that they say. You're right. There ain't, there ain't a man on earth that can do this. Only God can do this. And, and this is what they go on to say. They say, there's not a man on earth that can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. And then they add a P.S., whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, as if to say, hey, the only one that can do this is the gods, and you know what? We ain't very close to them, is kind of the idea. And, and so what, what, what you have here, you have a very key insight into uh, the, the folly of these men, these, these so-called advisors, and their lack of wisdom. Because in verse 10, they say, hey, there's not a man on earth that can do this. And in verse 11, they say, look, God's dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, look, only God can do what you ask, and we're not very close to him. But the psalmist knew something that these men didn't know. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 145, 18. It tells us the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. 
In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 1, 23, and the angel comes and he's telling Mary about the, the, the Messiah that she will give birth to and, and all. And then uh, it quotes there, Matthew 1, 23, quotes uh, from the prophet Isaiah and, and says this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Guys, listen, God loves you. He loves you with such an incredible love that he sent his son to die for you. And we can know him. We can know him intimately. We can know him personally. We can call upon him day or night. God, or or Paul, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking to uh, the folks up at Mars Hill and uh, in, in Athens there, he, he says to them this in Acts chapter 17. He says, God's purpose is for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. See, God didn't send this king. He didn't send the, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar this dream to torment him. He sent him this dream to transform him. That's his intention. He wants to reach this man. He wants to transform this man. He wants to change this man. He wants to bring him from darkness to life. He wants to to, to light and he wants to bring him from death to life. That's his desire. Can Can I tell you, that's his desire for you as well. See, God sent this dream so that he would seek after the Lord. Again, Isaiah the prophet said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And here's where I go with all of this. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar and God giving him this dream that left him anxious. Man, I'm up against it. I'm hard-pressed. It's constantly, it's this thing that's freaking me out. Maybe today you're anxious. And maybe God's allowed something in your life that, you know, as we look at the, the definition of this, this anxiety that he has, strike against you, beat against you, push persistently against you. Maybe God's allowed that in your life. Maybe he's engineered it in your life. Maybe today you're here and you're stressed out. Maybe God's engineered all of that because, like King Nebuchadnezzar, God wants you to turn to him. God wants you to seek him, to trust in him. And maybe God's allowed you this place of anxiety because you haven't been trusting in him. Listen, the psalmist declares, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. You need to know that today. You need to know, maybe you're here today and maybe, you know, you've walked with the Lord, but you know that you've wandered. You've kind of got off track. Maybe you've got this thing that you're burdened down with and that you're weighed down with that is causing you sleepless nights. And maybe you haven't been trusting the Lord with that. You need to know that you can trust the Lord with that. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted the Lord. You never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God would say to you today, My purpose 
is that you would seek after me and find me. And I'm not far from you. I've never been far from you. I love you. See, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we're called to believe and confess. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, we're, and, and that, that he, he died on the cross for my sin in my place. He paid the penalty that, that I could never pay because he loves me. He's not some cosmic killjoy just looking to, to crush you. He loves you. And if you'll, if you'll believe that and if you'll confess that, the Bible says that you'll be saved. God's desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to a place of of eternal life through relationship with with Jesus Christ. And God's made that way for us. That's his deep desire for us. That's that's what all this is about in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And ultimately, he is going to reach him. Ultimately, we're going to see in the coming chapters that God's going to take Nebuchadnezzar through it, but he's going to bring him to a place where he confesses faith in God. And if you're in a situation, in a circumstance today, God's deep desire for you is that through that you would come to know him and you would come to trust him. You need to know that. By the way, the people you're seeking counsel from, they need to know that too. If if you're seeking counsel from people that, that have denied the Lord, that don't know the Lord, well, Proverbs is filled with the folly of such things. We need to know that. Verse 12, as we continue. For this reason, what reason? The reason that, hey, you know, these, these astrologers and magicians and all of, all of the, 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 the worldly wisdom, for the reason that they couldn't do what the king needed them to do, they let him down, they failed him. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out and they began killing the wise man, men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, it's not just that he wanted to kill them. He was actually, he started killing them. I mean, it, it's like, you know, boom, boom, you're dead. We're going down the list here. He's, he's taking care of this right now. Verse 14, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had come out to kill the wise men of Babylon, He answered and he said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. In other words, he's like, well, let me tell you, Daniel, here's what's going on. He had this dream and he's freaking out about it. Nobody can answer the dream. And and so because his, his wise men let him down, he wants everybody dead. He said, kill them all. Verse 16, so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, this, this isn't in my notes, but it's just one of those side things. This is, this is worth the price of admission right here. Just write it down. This is one of those aside observations. Daniel went in and asked the king. And here's what I have written in the margin of my Bible. I wrote, character brings access. Character brings access. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29, read it. Basically says, if you're, if you're a wise man, if you're a godly man, if you're somebody that, 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 that obeys God and, and lives according to, to a life that is consistent with that, that that's going to bring you before wise men. That's going to bring you before kings. That's going to bring you before rulers. 
Fools, they're not brought before kings. They're not brought before rulers. They don't have that kind of access. Character brings access. Well, that's not my point in my notes, but here's the point. What I want you to note is, is that there's a difference between the way the king reacts and there's a difference between the way Daniel reacts. Night and day difference, right? Second point, write it in your notes, and this is one of those takeaways. I want you to just sort of think about this this week. How do you react in time of trouble? How do you react in time of trouble? First question is, you know, who, who do you rely on for, for, for help and advice? Who do you rely on when you're in trouble? Second one, how do you react when you're in trouble? It's been said that a crisis doesn't make a man, it reveals the man. In other words, how you react in times of trouble really reveals what you're made of. And I want you to note the king's response here, because he responds just 180 degrees from how, from how Daniel responds. Notice that the king's response, it's completely disproportionate to the stimuli. Disproportionate to the stimuli. Here's what this means. If, if my wife makes me a, a wonderful breakfast, and, and there's, there's eggs, and there's toast, and there's just piles of bacon made just the way I like it, and she brings it to me, and the toast is burned, and I take that plate, and I throw it across the room, my response is disproportionate to the stimuli. In other words, there's something else going on. I didn't throw that plate across the room. I wouldn't do that. It's an analogy. But I didn't throw that plate because my wife would say, well, now clean it up. You know, anyway, (laughs) I didn't throw that plate across the room because the toast was burned. There's something deeper going on. And I want you to notice for the king, that's the idea here. There is something deeper cooking in the king's heart. His response is disproportionate, and it's, it's completely different than, than, than Daniel's response. Because, you know, he, he like has this dream, and you can't interpret it, and so now he's going to kill all the wise men. And remember, in chapter 1, he's got like three years of intense investment in every single one of these guys at least. And so now he's going to go out and have them all killed. That's a huge investment that, that, you know, for, for such a simple thing. Now, hold that thought. In extreme contrast, what we see in Daniel is something altogether different. See, Daniel is the one here who has a death sentence hanging over his head, and, and he possesses peace that King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar lacks. Why? What's going on? Well, jump ahead. We're just going to look at it, and we'll we'll cover it in next week. But jump ahead to to verse 29. And I want you to tell you, God's going to give Daniel the interpretation of his dream. Uh, But he gives him more than that. You know, Daniel goes to the Lord and says, you've got to tell us the dream and the interpretation of it. God tells him the dream. God gives him the interpretation of it. But you know what else God does? God shows him what was in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind before he even went to bed. Verse 29, he says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Here's the, here's the point. What we see is that King Nebuchadnezzar was anxious about the future. He was stressed about the future. How many of you guys saw last week the, the Powerball uh, thing, the, the, the Powerball jackpot? You guys see that last week? Got up to what, $590 million. 
Funny story about that. Brenda went to the gas station with her mom, took her out for a drive, and they had to get gas, and she pulled in. And uh, she ran in to get some water. She asked the gal for some water, and the gal handed her a lottery ticket. And she's like, what's that? She said, you asked for a lotto ticket. She said, I asked for a water bottle. And so she goes, oh, she goes to take the ticket back. Brenda's like, well, give me the ticket now. I mean, this is kind of the, this is totally the stories you always hear, you know? Some providential thing. God wants to give us a church building. I'll take the ticket. It's worth the dollar entertainment. We didn't get one number on that ticket. And uh, I will never win the lottery. I've always said that, you know? So, but... $590 $590 million. Now, the, some 89-year-old granny won this, right? She's the sole winner, Florida. $590 million bucks, And, you know, she took the lump sum payout, which, you know, it's, I, I forget what it is. But basically, it works out to about $180 million after taxes. That would help, wouldn't it? I mean, how many of y'all right now, you're thinking that would solve a lot of issues right there if I had $180 million? Well, think about it from King Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint. Here you got the richest, most powerful man who's ever lived. He rules everything. He owns everything. And he discovered that the peace isn't in his possessions, the peace isn't in his paycheck, the peace isn't in his position, the peace isn't in his power, the peace isn't even in his powerball, okay? He discovered there ain't no peace in none of it. He's on his bed, he's thinking about the future, and, and now this is why his anger is disproportionate, because he got a glimpse of his mortality, that's why. This guy who's large and in charge and totally in control just realized, I can't control nothing. I don't know the future. I can't control the future. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, they ain't putting Nebuchadnezzar back together again. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this to face judgment. And Nebuchadnezzar was a man. He didn't know where he came from. Didn't really know why he was here. He didn't know where he was going. And he got a glimpse of the mortality that he had in his future, and he's freaked out. He had no peace. Do you have peace today? Um, Harrison Ford was being interviewed by a, a magazine several years ago, and they said, uh, you know, they're asking him all these questions, and finally, you know, he, he just kind of offered up. He says, you know, you always want what you ain't got. They're like... Harrison Ford, actor, movie star, superstar, millionaire. What ain't you got? Peace. Nebuchadnezzar's freaked out because he got a glimpse into the fact that there's a day he's going to die. And he wasn't ready for it. Just to ask you the question, are you ready to face judgment? See, because... In contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel reacts with counsel and wisdom. In other words, whereas King Nebuchadnezzar lost it, Daniel was calm and collected. Why? Well, the prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. That that word blessed, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, it means literally to bless, to kneel, to praise, or salute. It's, it's, It's a worshipful word is what it is. 
And here's the idea. The idea that is, is as you trust God, as you worship Him as Lord, and as you anchor your life to Him, as we went through in the, the book of Colossians, as you trust Him, you are in fact worshiping Him with your life. And, and He becomes your hope. He becomes your confidence. Listen, the psalmist said this. He said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Where's your help come from? Had you placed entirely your hope in the Lord? Are you trusting in him? See, here's what I want you to see, and I'm going to close with this. What I want you to see is that as Christians, we like Daniel, we are far from home. This world is not our home. We live in a world that is uncertain. We live in a world that is threatening. But Jesus said that he has gone to prepare a place for us. As a matter of fact, I was going to have you turn there, but for time's sake, I'll just read it for you if that's all right. You're welcome to turn there if you want. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 2. But here's what he told his disciples. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now at this point, doubting Thomas speaks up. And he's like, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how could we know the way? And Jesus said at that point, in response to that question, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to ask you again, how do you react in times of trouble? Do you look more like King Nebuchadnezzar who freaks out because you got a glimpse at your own mortality? Or are you as, as Daniel? Nothing moves me, man. I can be calm. I can be collected. And I can face this without my whole world falling apart. Why? Because even though I'm here far from home, I trust the Lord. I cast all my cares upon him knowing that he cares for me.